Do you like a good book? I do. My wife always likes a proper book, none of these Kindle or iPad things. She likes something that you can feel in your hands. When I started to get into reading as a child, the titles all had numbers. Enid Blyton with the famous Five or Secret Seven. Later, The Tale of Two Cities, one of the only two Charles Dickens books that I've ever read. Or The Three Musketeers. Or Agatha Christie with The Big Four, Five Little Pigs, Thirteen for Dinner, The Seven Dials Mysteries. She obviously liked numbers. So today's sermon, Testimony and Signpost, could have been subtitled The Four Johns, or maybe it's five. It was written by John the Apostle in his Gospel about the baptism of Jesus by John the Baptist. Last week's service, which introduced the, the subject, was by John Collard. And in case you've seen my signature, J. Martin Russell, now you know what the J stands for. We'll get to the fifth John later. So I hope you don't get too confused by all these Johns. I was quite pleased that our reading today was from John 1, as I anticipate that this will be my only chance to say something about baptism. In the Church of Scotland, as with many denominations, but not all, baptism and communion are recognised as sacraments which only an ordained minister can officiate at. Not that I agree with the Church of Scotland's stance on this. But as you must be an ordained minister conduct, to conduct a baptism service, you would anticipate that the same minister would be preaching that day, and they would include something about baptism and what it means in their sermon, or at least the service. So I wouldn't expect to be taking one of those services and preaching on baptism. Now, John Collard said quite a bit about Jesus' baptism in the service last week, and I have no intention of repeating what he said. Or would you like to hear it again? It was very good. <laughs> but the passage today from John's Gospel isn't a repetition of Matthew's account, although John re recounts the event from his perspective. In fact, the baptism of Jesus isn't described as such in John's Gospel, but we get to hear John the Baptist's personal account of it. So what's the significance of baptism in the church today? Different denominations take different views on this. All churches, as far as I know, support adult baptism, but only some, including the Church of Scotland, accept infant baptism, where parents take vows on behalf of their children, while the Baptist and Evangelical churches usually or often insist that only adult baptism by immersion counts. There's a public confession of faith and vows or promises are made. It's looked on as an acceptance of the person into full membership of the fellowship. And in the Roman Catholic Church, as far as I know, without baptism, there is no certainty that the person or child can be thought of as acceptable to enter heaven, hence the rush to baptize infants who are dying. But I don't intend to go into the rights or wrongs of infant or adult baptism today. If you want a discussion about this, see me later. But I do want to say something of the significance of baptism. You see, in some churches, it would be easy to see baptism as an entry to the fellowship. You've arrived, 
And that's the end of it. And for some families and people, that's exactly what it is. Once they've been baptized, you hardly see them again, perhaps at Christmas or communion, but hardly otherwise. In other churches, it's more the beginning, thought of as setting out on the Christian journey, especially for children. For all denominations, it's seen as an an acceptance into the fellowship. For Jesus, it was the beginning of his earthly ministry, his public ministry. But here's a philosophical question for you. At what stage or time in his life did Jesus recognize or know that he was the son of God? Surely not when he was a baby in Mary's arms or as an infant. Did he know by the time he was left behind in the temple in Jerusalem when he said, didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? Or was it sometime later, perhaps even just before he came to John the Baptist to be baptized? In any event, at some point, he had to make up his mind to follow his father's bidding and come to John for baptism. So baptism is more akin to taking another step along the road, which is how I think of baptism. Another step, an important one for sure, when you've made up your mind to commit your life to Jesus, but only another step along the journey. There's still a long way to go, which is why our focus groups are a great way to continue learning and getting closer to each other and to our Savior. John's baptism with water indicated repentance and the washing away of sin, but it wasn't a permanent fix. There's still what we used to call backsliding, falling back into old ways. But the baptism Jesus brings is the baptism of the Holy Spirit coming down like a dove to offer a more permanent relationship with God through the Holy Spirit living within us, cleansing us daily to be fit for his kingdom. The vital role of John the Baptist was to reveal Jesus, not just to Israel, but to the world. Verse 32 to 34, then John gave this testimony. I saw the spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. The baptism of Jesus was the confirmation of John the Baptist's calling in announcing the good news of the kingdom and the coming Messiah or God's chosen one. And for Jesus, in being anointed by the Spirit and hearing God's affirmation, recounted in the other Gospels, that this is my Son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. So John the Baptist has two important roles here, in Revelation and also by his testimony. Now, as many of you will know, I'm a doctor who's involved in a lot of scientific research. So I'm used to looking at learned medical and scientific papers, including statistics, and particularly gauging the relevance of the evidence presented. But John's testimony is more like legal evidence. You should speak to someone like Stephen Hay about this rather than me, 
But as I understand it, in legal terms, there are different sorts of evidence. And one of the major ones is an eyewitness account from a reliable witness to the events, particularly what they saw or heard. And this is what John is doing here. This is what I saw and heard. But to whom did John give this testimony? Presumably to some of his disciples or followers. The next section of our reading tells of John speaking to two of his disciples when Jesus passed by. One of them, we are told later, was Andrew. The other one, there's speculation about it. It might have been John the Gospel writer or Philip, see verse 43, or someone else. And as John Collard said last week, John the Baptist's description of Jesus as the Lamb of God would have been surprising to them. Lambs were used in sacrifices. This wasn't what they thought they were looking for. So John gives his testimony. But John, Jesus then raises some questions and his first words to them are surprising. What are you looking for? Not who? And their answer is also a bit odd. They call him rabbi or teacher and then they ask, where? Where are you staying? Not who are you or are you the Messiah? They obviously wanted to know more, so they want some quality time with Jesus, not just a quick chat. John the Baptist's other important role, therefore, was to point to Jesus and direct his disciples to them without trying to keep them to himself. You wonder how he felt about this. He had to be diminished in order that Jesus was put in the higher order of things. And as well as John pointed people to Jesus, we have the example of Andrew bringing Simon, his brother. Andrew has a reputation for bringing, in the Gospels for bringing people to Jesus. The boy with the five loaves and the two fish at the feeding of the 5,000, John 6, 8 to 9. The Greeks who wanted to meet Jesus at Jerusalem in the festival, John 12, 22. But surely his greatest contribution to the church was in bringing Simon, his brother, to Jesus, witnessing to his own family, not the easiest of things to do, note. A minor little point in verse 42, which comes back to Miriam's talk. Jesus meets Simon and gives him the name of Cephas, or Rock. I always thought this was a big rock or boulder, like you thinking back to Fred Flintstone and the like. But actually, Cephas denotes more a small stone. The church starts from small beginnings. So both John the Baptist and Andrew acted as signposts, pointing Jesus, people to Jesus. But what the disciples will not have realized was that as they were looking for the Messiah, he was looking for them, just as applies today. There was no checking of their credentials, no pressure to sign on, simply an open invitation to explore further. I remember when we first moved to Stockport, we went to the nearest Christian church, the local evangelical church. But when we expressed an interest in joining the, the church, we, and particularly Carol, my wife, were subjected to an inquisition into the basis of our faith, 
the third degree. And it was obvious that unless we measured up to their standards and beliefs, we wouldn't be welcome. We didn't go back. Jesus wants to welcome everyone into God's family, no matter who we are. But what matters is how we respond to his call. What's the greatest service you could do for someone? As a doctor, I might say, save their life. As a Christian, I might also say, save their life, but with a very different meaning. I'd like to think that somewhere along the line and contributed to someone, at least, coming to faith in Jesus. Bill Hybels, sorry, Bill Hybels is a former pastor of Willow Creek Community Church in Chicago. In one of his books, Just Walk Across the Room, he describes how the first steps in bringing someone to faith might involve no more than walking across a room and greeting them, getting to know them. I'd never thought of this before, but a few months ago, Ian Harrow, Ian, of course, is the Scots word for John, so that's the fifth John. Ian told me a story. I was at Ian's funeral just over a week ago, and although I was reasonably early, the session were already in the sanctuary, the sanctuary was full, and I had to join those in the overflow in the large hall, which was strangely appropriate because that was where I had first met Ian. In those days, I was an officer in the 7th East Club Ride BB, and young Ian and his brother Alan had come to see what was on and join up. Davy Armstrong, the then BB captain, had met the boys, and Ian remembered that I walked the length of the large hall to meet them after that, and he clearly had never forgotten it. I trust I ever had something to do with Ian's faith journey. Of course, getting to know someone and building up a relationship is only the start. At some point, we must raise the issue of faith. What is their faith? What do they believe? And share our knowledge and experience of Jesus, of God, in our lives. And it's easy to fall into the trap of inviting someone to come along to the church. It's easy to do, but it has connotations of being invited to a club. By all means, invite people along to meet other Christians, to get to know other people, to see other Christians in action. But the real invitation has to be to speak about Jesus and invite them to accept him into our lives. Our commission is to preach the gospel, not to give out invitations to come to church. So how well do we do telling people about Jesus and his message, his saving grace? Ian Harrow wasn't the only person I think I've influenced for Christ because in my previous company in Glasgow, one of the boys later became an elder, BB captain and Sunday school superintendent in his church in later years. And again, I hope I had something to do with him coming to a faith of his own. All very well. But that makes two people in, say, 50 years. If this was the goal-scoring record for your football team, you wouldn't be at all impressed, not even if it was two goals a year. Two goals a week might be better. If you were Celtic or Man United, you'd be quite glad of two goals this weekend. 
So how seriously do we take our commission to follow Jesus and spread his gospel, to be like John the Baptist and Andrew and give our testimony and point people to Jesus? Testimony doesn't have to be an account of a life-changing event, but just a statement of what he means in our lives, how he directs our paths, what he means to us on a daily basis. So here's a challenge for you. How about when we meet for tea or coffee after the service today, you spend some time telling your friends about what Jesus means to you. And if you're one of those who scoot off after the service, think about speaking for a while with other members over coffee. The challenge we should be setting is to speak to at least two people each week, getting to know them, telling them about Jesus at home, in our families, in work, shops, wherever. The Church of Scotland, as we all know, is in crisis. Not enough ministers, old buildings, falling numbers in congregations. But the real crisis in the church is not about any of that. It's our failure to speak up for Christ, taking every opportunity we can, spreading the gospel the way he asked his disciples to do, and letting the Holy Spirit work on the seeds we've sown. John the Baptist and Andrew showed us the way. Could you give your testimony about Jesus and point someone to him? Are you up for the challenge of the gospel? Amen. Let's pray together. O God and Heavenly Father, may we hear the call of your kingdom. May your light shine through us. May we reach out to the lost. Help us to speak out for you and point others to our blessed Saviour, the Saviour of the world. Amen.